Holy Father, God, we come here and we gather as one people uh, to seek your face, Lord, to encounter you in this moment. And God, we pray that as we read your word, it seeps down into our hearts. God, that we have ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that turn and walk with you towards you. Lord, we know that you lead us in the good path. We know that you have good ends in mind, God, but on the way it can become hard. We can stumble and we fall and we can lose sight of you, Lord, and and we can feel as if you're absent or distant, that you're not with us, Lord, but I pray that in this time you remind us that you are near and that we are loved. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, So this morning we are going to continue in our series through the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, please join me in Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. and It'll be there as well. The title of the message this morning is, Who is God? Who is God? A question that all of us ask at one point in our life, maybe subconsciously. Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was basically like the city council of Athens. And it was world-renowned at the time. Took them to the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So you can see that Luke is writing this and he has kind of like a little... A little sarcasm in his voice, right? He's not really fond of the Athenians, it might seem. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. 
And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and and others said, we want to hear about this subject again. At uh, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. And we reply, thanks be to God. And as we continue uh, through Acts, we're going to watch Paul go to city after city. And today we find ourselves in Athens, in the city of Athens. And just so you guys know, heads up, maybe put your seatbelt seat buckles on. I want everybody to do that with me right here. Seatbelt buckles. Mark, I didn't see you put your... Thank you. Be safe. There you go, Chabali. Thank you. Um, this is going to be teaching heavy. So lots of information, okay? We find ourselves in Athens, right? And this is the, the map that we've been looking at each week of Paul's missionary journey. He's been traveling with Silas and Timothy and a number of others. But today... He is in Athens, and they are in the city that they're in previously. And so he's there by himself. And he goes into, you know, first the synagogue, which was, you know, the, kind of the people he was comfortable with, right? The Jewish people, the people who believed in his God already. And he starts talking to them about Jesus. But then he starts going into the marketplace day by day, every day, spending time in the marketplace. And the marketplace was called the Agora. And it was the place where everyone did all of their daily life, all the stores, all the, uh, the kind of the religious centers, uh, the places where people would learn and debate and talk about philosophy. And so that's Athens. And this is a photo of uh, kind of an overview of Athens. And so right here, that whole big area, that's the marketplace. And on the outskirts of the market, kind of the marketplace, on the, the rectangle that encircles it, is uh, all these porticos, which are basically columned porches. So little overhangs with columns that are really, really beautiful. And those were all, each portico, each porch was dedicated to a different kind of school of thought. So you'd have like a, a, a porch that was dedicated to the Stoic philosophers, one that was dedicated to the Epicurean philosophers. You have another one that was dedicated to a different emperor of the past, uh, maybe a present emperor. You have one that's dedicated to like different Greek gods. Uh, and so you have all of these different porticos and you have people who follow kind of that school of thought. So you have certain th- philosophers, certain people who are super religious, following their God, people who are all about the emperor and trying to get into his good graces. You have all these people choosing camps, and they come every day to the marketplace to do all their business, but also to debate with one another and try to like kind of bring one another to their school of thought so they could kind of gain some prominence. And so that is Athens. The next slide we see is kind of another, you know, Big overview of Athens. Uh, We see the Agora, that's the marketplace where Paul's preaching the gospel. Mars Hill is another word for Areopagus, and that's where that council was. So that's where they took Paul. And then the Acropolis is up there, that yellow thing. And that's if you guys have ever seen like pictures of the Parthenon in Athens. It's this great, magnificent temple with all these columns. Uh, I think it's one of the ancient wonders of the world. Is it, baby? I don't know. I'm pretty sure it is. Let's just, I'm going to go ahead and say it is. Yes, thank you, Gabby. You confirmed. Uh, anyways, uh, so it's just a magnificent thing, and it's on top of that hill, right? Oh, so you're on top of that hill, that's the Acropolis. And so you see Athens truly is, as Paul says, a city full of idols, right? They idolized everything. And um, if you think about idolatry, right, it's uh, basically you can define idolatry 
as the object of one's devotion. The object of one's devotion. It could be something that you admire, the thing that you love more than anything else, the thing that organizes and, and rules your life, your worship. And one can idolize anything. You can idolize a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You can idolize a job. You could idolize a group of people, a certain religious idea or a certain worldview. You can even idolize your spouse. And some of us are like, oh, once you get married, you can't idolize people anymore, right? Wrong. You can still idolize your spouse. And Athens had a particular Athenian culture. And uh, they, they were all about academics. Athens was known as like the city of the academy. It was called the university city. And uh, it was also known for its art and its architecture. That's why I had these incredible monuments dedicated to gods like the, the Acropolis, like the Parthenon. Uh, the other thing about Athenian culture is that they believed that the Greek race was the supreme race, that it was better than all other races. And so people come to the marketplace and they're trying to convince them of their Athenian way of life, that they are better, that they are smarter, that they are richer, that they are more cultured. And uh, you can kind of already realize that the idolatry of Athens went far beyond carved statues that were dedicated to, quote unquote, make-believe gods, right? The people who worshipped those statues, it wasn't because they thought that that statue was significant. They worshipped that statue because they desired peace and prosperity. And the god of Athens was Athena. And she was the god of both war and prosperity for the Greeks. And so they worship her not because they think that this rock you know, rock carving is like really special. They worship her because they desire, they idolize peace, prosperity, and being victorious in war, which by the way, leads to peace for you, not necessarily for the people you fight. They idolized everything. They idolized their intellect. They idolized their culture. They idolized who they were as a people, as opposed to others. And so Paul comes into Athens and he's in a different setting than he's ever been before, right? He's always been in settings where, uh, you know, he was kind of mostly going to Jewish people, religious people who he was familiar with. And now he gets to Athens and he's like, yo, this place is crazy. And he begins to talk to them about God. And he's answering the question, who is God? That is his big point. Um, this is another photo of Athena, a statue of Athena, and then the Acropolis. And so Paul is talking about who is God. And when we think about who is God, I want to ask you guys, who is God to you? When you think about God's relationship to you, how he treats you, how he views you, how he relates to you, what comes to mind? Because we're conditioned throughout the course of our lives to see and view God a certain way. And some of this is positive. Some of it builds a healthy view of God, a healthy relationship to God. Some of it's negative. Some of, us bring, some of it brings distance, maybe a wall between us and God. And for me, you know, I've thought of God in the past and still in the present sometimes as I've thought of certain teachers I've had over the years. And that can be good, right? Teachers teach you new things. They instruct you kind of on, on how to do things the right way, right? And I can think about God that way. Uh, but I also, if you know me at all, you, you could probably assume I was a bit of an adventurous, rambunctious child, maybe, just possibly. And I might have gotten in trouble a lot as a kid. And um, we're, we're still not sure. No, I definitely did. I got in trouble all the time. Like one time I was in kindergarten and uh, they used to put me in time out in the corner, right? 
And that's like kind of shaming, you know, like everybody sees you and like you are the one that nobody can talk to. Nobody gets to play with. You're sitting in the corner. And it's like this white, you know, cinder block painted wall. And all you're doing is picking off the paint on the cinder blocks. And then the teacher comes in and yells at you again. And you're like, what do you want me to do? I'm five years old, right? And I was, you know, emotionally mature enough to be able to communicate that, of course. And, um, you know, so I got in trouble a lot. I got disciplined a lot by teachers, right? And uh, most of it I deserved. And then I became kind of that kid who was always viewed as the bad kid, right? So then I get in trouble, like, whether or not I did something wrong. And um, I kind of felt that way before God. I kind of felt that way that, that God sees me. You know, and, and I experienced this even in Sunday school, right? I even got in trouble in Sunday school. So even in a church setting, right? And so I kind of became like, I developed, I developed this view of God where he was this, like, teacher taskmaster, who at best was unfazed by me and at worst was angry, threatening, and displeased. And if best case scenario, God is unfazed by you, meaning he pays you no mind, it's not a great healthy view of God, right? That's not going to build a relationship with God that's one of love and joy and peace, right? That's some distance, some tension, right? And for some of us, maybe, maybe you relate to that. But for some of us, maybe God is a problem to be solved rather than a relationship to be had. For some of us, maybe we try to come up with logical reasonings for how God can be real despite our circumstances. And thus we just bring distance between us and God. He is an all-knowing, all-powerful being without any real relationship with us who still pays us maybe no personal mind. And so God becomes a problem to be solved rather than a relationship to be had. For others, maybe we have a view of God that reflects a relationship we had with a parent. You know, maybe we were kind of strained with this pressure of always feeling like you had to please one of your parents. You know, checking the boxes to make sure you're doing what mom or dad said you should. But always kind of just feeling a little bit of tension. Like it just wasn't good enough or like they just didn't see you or hear you. As if you always longed to be set free from them, but yet you always wanted them to be happy with you and you felt like you couldn't escape that. Or maybe you feel like God is distant and uninvolved, like God has left you or abandoned you. But the question Paul is coming at to the Athenians is who is God? Who is God to you and who is he truly? And how can we get those things to align? And when you talk about the parent thing, you know, not maybe not being good enough for your parent, you know, I think about... um. I wasn't allowed to get C's in, in, uh, in school, right? And so when I was in high school, I was, uh, there was actually an ongoing debate between my, mo- my mom and I, whether or not I was getting a C. I, I got a B in that class, but basically I, I was like kind of on the low end of the B scale, right? In, in, a, in a, a class in high school. And um, I wasn't really trying hard. She knew I could do better. And she's like, well, it seems like you're going to get a C. And uh, so you can't take your permit test or get your driver's license until uh, you have all A's and B's. And I literally got it way later than everybody else because I had that low B. And she keeps saying that you got to see. I was like, I never got to see. I'm just saying, I never got to see. Got my first C and only C in college. So I'm just, just saying. Um, but kind of this feeling of like, oh, am I doing enough? And I'm, I'm, I joke because honestly, my mom pushed me and helped me be a better student. And um, I'll do the same to my kids. So thank you, mother. She will go back and listen to this. Um, but we come to, back to uh, Athens and the Athenian culture. And we kind of have these two schools of philosophy that that Paul encounters 
as he's trying to preach the gospel of Jesus. It's the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. And the Epicurean philosophers, we're going to start with them. Uh, But their philosophy was this, that happiness is the highest good and it is to be attained by living a life free from excess of all kinds, getting rid of fear and of love for others. Basically, your personal happiness is the most important thing. Everything else comes second to that. And it's all worth throwing away for the pursuit of your happiness. The other thing they believe, this is a direct quote from Epicurean philosophers, uh, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good pleasure can be attained, evil pain can be endured. In other words, your, highest, your, your happiness is the highest good. And they believe in God, don't get me wrong. They think God is real or God's plural are real. They just don't think they're that important. They think they're there distant. They're not personally involved with you. They're not going to make your life better. They can't really make your life that much worse. So keep them at arm's length. Don't worry about it. Pursue you. Right? Maybe this sounds a little bit familiar. We're going to go to Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophers believe that there's a great purpose, capital P, kind of divine purpose, shaping all nature and humankind toward good ends. For you, by the way. They also believe that pursuing this purpose is far more important than any suffering along the way. And so for them, they're kind of believing more so, oh, well, you've got to kind of unlock the divine within you. What is your purpose? And no matter what suffering you go through, no matter what happens, no matter what hardship, you can endure it as long as you're going after unlocking the best you you can be. Another direct quote from Stoic philosophers, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Does that sound familiar at all? (laughs) I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Hmm. Interesting. Can't relate to that at all. (laughs) You know, they also believe that humanity should be united in their kinship with the divine because they kind of believe we're all our own God. And so this led to a a sense of self-worship, right? And the the, the, the thing though about their humanity being united in in kind of the divine self was that only the, the Greeks were united in the divine self because they were su- the supreme race in their worldview. And so you have all kinds of issues. These aren't that different than what we believe today. To our shame. And as we think about this, this philosophy that everything, kind of this idea that you have everything you need to be successful within yourself. Right? You need to just unlock your hidden potential. And the issue here is that God is found within you. You at your best can be the highest power and purpose. You are your own God. You guys ever heard of the term uh, manifesting? That you can unlock something within yourself and speak something into existence. That you can make something true for you. That you can be the master of your own fate. Can we really unlock our own destiny? The idea that it doesn't matter how much suffering comes about, whether it's your own suffering or you causing suffering to others, as long as you get your highest good. These ideas ruled Athenian culture, but they're just as prevalent today. I think they've crept into our Christianity. Don't we view God as distant and uninvolved at times? Don't we make seeking after pleasure our highest priority once in a while? And don't we also try to manipulate God to do our will rather than us doing his will? Like, don't we 
don't we sometimes pray in such a way that he will do what we want him to do? Don't we ask him to make things happen for us? Have you guys ever maybe checked all the right boxes because you want God to be happy with you and then bless you? Have you guys ever come to church every Sunday and felt like, man, now I deserve God to take care of my health. Now I deserve God to take care of my student loans. Now I deserve God to help me pass this class that I'm not really studying my hardest. I'm staying up late watching Netflix or whatever. I don't know. You know, we can make excuses for ourselves, but as long as, you know, if I do this, God better bless me. You know what that is? That's a health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. That is the same thing as offering gifts to the statue of Athena and saying, you better give me prosperity this year in my finances. Do we not let these ideas creep into our Christianity and we treat God like a Greek goddess? We do the same thing. We might say that everything's in God's hands, that he is the captain of our ship. But then we try to manipulate and control God with our actions to fit and uh, for the purpose of our means. We're subtly trying to be our own captain. And so Paul picks up on this in the marketplace in the synagogue of Athens. And it's funny, there's a quote. Let me, uh, let me go back and find it. Um, so Paul's from Tarsus. If you guys have ever heard of, of Tarsus, it's uh, the city that Paul's from. And uh, there's a quote from uh, kind of the people of Athens hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it says, from her, it's about Athens, from her radiated spiritual light and intellectual energy to Tarsus, Antioch, and Alexandria. And the idea is that Paul would have heard all about Athens way before he visited there. And then he gets there and he's talking to people in the marketplace and it's like it punches him in the face again. He's like, wow, this is real. Like I've heard these stories, but oh my gosh, this is actually what it's like here. And uh, he gets there and he, he looks at all the different idols. Kind of like makes his trip around the city. Maybe he even goes up to the Acropolis and looks at the big temple to Athena and he's looking at all these things and he picks up on this and then he sees this statue or this, this idol with an inscription that says, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. And he takes that idea and he says, wow, they do believe in an unknown God. They have all these gods for all these different things, but there's a little bit of them that believes there's, there's another God out there, that there's something else. And he's like, I'm going to capitalize on this because this is how God is going to reveal himself. The true God is going to reveal himself to the people of Athens. And so Paul has probably heard this story. There's a story from the 6th century BC. It's a Greek story. And the story where a plague had struck Athens. And the Athenian people were getting sick and people were dying. And so they started making sacrifices to every god the Athenians could conceive of. And so they're making sacrifices and offering gifts to all these different gods. And the plague doesn't go away. It keeps killing people. It keeps uh, making people sick. And so what they do is they build an altar to an unknown god. And they worship this unknown God for a brief moment. And you know what happens? The plague disappears and everyone's healed. And that's this, this, this Greek story that's been around for hundreds of years at this point. And Paul has heard this story as the intellectual light has reached Tarsus. He's heard this story. He's probably, you know, he goes into the marketplace and he sees this idol. And he's like, oh my gosh. The God that I know is the one who healed them when nothing else that they worshiped could, when everything that they worshiped was failing them, the God I know heals. This is an actual 
artifact. It's an actual idol that was discovered with the, inscri- the inscription on it in Greek. And then this is in uh, Italy. It's a statue that's now in a museum in Italy that says to an unknown God. It's amazing. And Paul takes this and he uses it as the bridge to bring God to the Athenians. And he critiques their understanding of a supreme Greek race. And so Paul takes this idea and they start picking up pieces of kind of their own philosophy, picking up quotes from their own philosophers and using them to show them who God is. And he says that all people are God's offspring. In the original language there, that word is actually race. And in other words, he's saying there's no supreme Greek race. All people are one race, God's race. They're all God's descendants. And what that means literally is that God is the father of us all. That you guys might think that, that the gods that you worship, the intellect that you so idolize, you might think that these things uh, will lead you and guide you and take care of you, that they'll give you peace or prosperity. No, the only thing that can give you real peace and prosperity is your father in heaven. And that's why you are his offspring. Paul says that God is not uninvolved. That the, the Athenians might have thought that they are the captain of their own ship, that God is distant or uninvolved. He says God's not uninvolved. He's actually the giver and sustainer of all life. He gives life and breath to all things. And thus self-pleasure isn't the highest goal. Pleasing God is the goal. And so what Paul is doing is saying that we're all on a level playing field. Why? Because we share God as our all, the all-father, if you've ever seen Vikings. Um, you know, this is the same God who gives and sustains all life. You are not self-sufficient. God is not absent or distant. Rather, to quote their own philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. God is the giver and sustainer of all life. We are his offspring. And in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is showing them who God truly is. That we don't reach our highest self by being the captain of our own souls, but by seeking out and finding ourselves within the life of God. That our purpose is therefore to know and experience God himself. And oh, by the way, he is near to you. That God has orchestrated the times and places in every single one of your lives. So you might perhaps seek after him, reach out and find him. For he is not far from any one of us. He is near to you and he is near to me. God is your father. He is your lover. He is your greatest prize. He is your best accomplishment. He knows you. And he wants you to know him. Your purpose isn't found within yourself. Your purpose, what you are created for, is to know God and to be known by him. To live as his son or daughter, close to the father near to him in his love, in his arms. Leslie Newbegin sums this all up by saying, God is the creator, upholder, and consummator of all that is. And this idea of consummator, why he says that? It's because to consummate means to, to bring to completion, to, to make one. And the Epicureans and Stoics had no idea of what consummation might be. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers didn't believe in an afterlife. That's why they said nothing to fear in death, because they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe that there's any hope in the future. And if that's the case, your highest good is self-pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? 
That's, that's literally, that's another uh, poet actually from the same Greek, Greek philosophers. But um, the idea is if there's no life after death, if there's nothing more to hope for, why care? But Paul is bringing the idea of resurrection to them, that you can be raised from the dead into new life in a new world. And they had no idea about any of this. And so what Paul does is he quotes their philosophers. And he goes with the same pattern. That there's this, um, this Greek poet uh, that's writing this kind of poem about Zeus and Zeus's son. And Zeus's son says to Zeus, Thou hast risen and is alive forever. In him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul quotes the second half of that poem so that they would think about the first half and realize Within our own poets, there's an idea of resurrection. Within ourselves, we hope for life after death. Why do we long for something more, something that we're not reaching in our intellect, in our academies, in our false gods? Because there's got to be more to life. There's got to be something greater than just me. I'm not truly self-sufficient. And so Paul points to Zeus and says, even your false gods say, Thou has risen and is alive forever. And we attribute that to Jesus. And Paul says, you know, let me show you the true God, who even your poets ring true. And we can say that the Son of God, Jesus, you have risen. You are alive forever. And so I want us to say out loud together with one voice. We're going to read that. Jesus, you have risen. You are alive forever. In you we live and move and have our being. And let us remember that God is our Father. He is near. He gives and sustains our lives. Our purpose is to know him and to be near to him, to love him and be within his love. And so I have three practices for us this morning to go into this week. The first one is the Lord's Prayer. To memorize the Lord's Prayer and to say it and add on to it and make it your own. But the thing that's so special about the Lord's Prayer is it shows us that God is our Father. He's not my father. He's not just your father. He's our father. And when we say that prayer, we realize that we are one family. We are one community. And we're a community of people who are dependent on a living God. A God who forgives. A God who leads us and guides us in the right paths. A God who sustains us with life. Who gives us our daily bread. A God who brings his kingdom into our midst. And so let us memorize and practice the Lord's Prayer. Practice number two is to remind one another. I know that in my life, I need others to remind me that God is my Father and that He is near. That He is not distant, He's not absent, that He's close at hand. And that He's intimately connected with me, that I am His offspring, that I am His son, that you are His son, that you are His daughter. And so my second practice for us is to remind one another of these truths. At one point, you or someone else in this room is going to need to be reminded who God is. And we can all answer that question with God is our Father and He is near. And my third practice for us is to take communion. To take communion together each week. For when we eat the bread that is Jesus' body and drink the wine that is His blood, we acknowledge that He truly is the giver and sustainer of our lives. And when we take communion together, we commune with both God and one another. And we display the truth that God is indeed our Father. That one, one type of people is not better than another. We are all leveled as sons and daughters of the Most High God. He is indeed our Father, not just my Father, not just your Father. 
He is near to us as our Father. And so let it be so among us that we may know who God is and can answer confidently that he is our Father, he is near, and we are one. Amen. To God be the glory.